Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For much of the past two years, award-winning journalist Earl Swift lived and reported on a tiny island in Virginia. The resulting book, Chesapeake Requiem, a year with the watermen of vanishing Tangier Island, is an elegiac portrait of this isolated community, a sweeping natural history of an extraordinary ecosystem, and a timely meditation on dire environmental realities that extend far beyond the shores of Tangier, which seems likely to succumb first among U.S. towns to the effects of climate change. Earl Swift has written six previous books, including Autobiography, The Big Roads, which is New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, and Where They Lay, a pen finalist. And he's written about Chesapeake region for uh, 30 years. He's circumnavigated the bay by kayak. And since 2012, Earl Swift has been a residential fellow for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities at the University of Virginia. Earl Swift, uh, welcome to the program. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. So uh, how did you, um, I guess you've reported on uh, the Chesapeake area, so you would have been familiar with uh, with Tangier Island. Is uh, How did you come to want to do this uh, reporting on the island and the resulting book? Well, if you live along the, the banks of the, the Chesapeake, and I did for 22 years in, in Norfolk, uh, you come to understand that Tangier's an almost mystical place. Uh, uh, it's swathed in, in, in um, stories that, that seem impossible, uh, especially in the, the early 21st century, that, you know, a place so isolated, though only 100 miles from, from Washington, D.C., so isolated that it that it's developed its own style of speech, which to an untuned mainland ear is utterly indecipherable. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that, the fact that, uh, these 460 odd islanders, uh, are all descended from the same family of settlers who put down there in 1778. It, uh, you know, it, it just, uh, seems so anachronistic, such a throwback that uh, the notion that it could have survived the centuries relatively intact uh, seems a stretch. And yet, um, when I finally got around to going to Tangier in 1999, I found, I found just that. I found a, uh, a town on a squiggle of marsh and mud 12 miles from the nearest mainland port surrounded by 18 trillion gallons of often tempestuous water uh, on, in which uh, community uh, actually means something. It means far more than, uh, than it's come to mean in, in most of the rest of the world, I think. This is a place where everybody truly has his or her neighbor's back uh, to the extent that they would, they would die for, for each other. Uh, and I saw that demonstrated... Uh, Luckily, you don't see it demonstrated often, but it was it played out before my eyes uh, in the spring of 2017. Hmm. Um, so, you know, once once I'd had a little little taste of the place, I I found myself wanting to go back uh, again and again and again. Uh, my, my first visit was in 1999 for a newspaper profile. I returned late that year to spend Y2K on the island, and um, in that it is. Old-school Christian and a dry island that was about the quietest millennial celebration <laughs> on the planet, I think, hmm. um, was was further wedded to go back and did so in the spring of 2000, spent six weeks on and off the island on that occasion with a photographer and, 
And, and our, our purpose there was to uh, write a package of stories for the Norfolk newspaper, the Virginian Pilot, that explored uh, the existential challenge that faced the island, uh, namely that it had lost two-thirds of its land mass since 1850. And it was the bay on the rise and the island itself, like much of the lower Chesapeake, sinking. Um, the prognosis for its survival was pretty bleak. Yeah, the sub uh, uh, subtitled uh, "Vanishing Tangier Island." Y- you open the book, in fact, um, with a trip that uh, one of the residents, uh, Carol Moore, took out to, um, I guess, a, a part of the island that uh, a community that's no longer there because um, that that land is is now submerged or is submerging. That's right. Uh, Tangier is uh, it's extremely low lying. It's board flat. Uh, the highest point on the island is, is five feet. Very few parts of the island top three feet above the tides, and most of it, being salt marsh, fails to clear one foot. And so when the tide is high, the water floods the in- entire interior of the place. When you have a particularly high tide, it leaps the banks of the marsh and covers the roads and comes into yards and, and really makes islands of the houses. So this is a place that's, that's been pretty amphibious for a long time. But um, what Carol Moore uh, found in the opening of the book, which takes place in, in 2016, a day after Hurricane Sandy had passed by to the east, um, was the remains of an old graveyard that had been stirred up by the storm, uh, a graveyard that at one point had been hundreds of feet from the water's edge, but which the bay had, had gradually encroached on until it, it consumed it. And so the bay, the book opens with Carol making this awful discovery, made all the more so by the fact that the graves that were unearthed in that uh, in that episode belonged to her direct forebears. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you, uh, you know, the introduction you you go out and uh, you encounter some you know gravestones out there. That's it's got to be very poignant. Especially for it is. It's sobering. Uh, you know, you're seeing the island's past and its future at the same time when you stand at that. That former settlement is called Canaan, and it's on a, a part of the island that's today uninhabited, but at one point was studded with little enclaves of, of houses. And um, those those settlements have been abandoned one after the other, uh, most in the early 20th century, mm. because uh, the water just kept coming. And and you know, it's it's been it's been sneaky on uh, sea level rise on Tangier. Um, it uh, most often takes the form of, of wind-driven waves coming in from the west and just pounding the, the island from that side. And, and um, with that, the island has withered most dramatically on, on that side. But it's, you know, it's also chipped away at, at the other parts of, of the shoreline and uh, just stealing a little, little bit away at a time. Uh, but you, know, you lose a half-inch of of this peaty sod that the island consists of per day and you know you've lost a foot a month and and so it it, it has clawed its way uh through not only canaan but uh but now threatens tangier proper where the island's 460 current residents live you also write you point out that uh, there have been other islands in chesapeake that have disappeared uh, you talk about sharps island holland island much earlier, you know, last century, but where where settlers had to abandon those islands, they did. And and you know, the, the Chesapeake is always uh, 
it's always had waves, you know, and um, Tangier sticks uh, is the, the farthest flung of all of them. It's it's smack in the middle of the widest part of the bay. Uh, it's about 30 miles wide there. And most of the other inhabited islands, including those that you mentioned, were further north and actually pretty protected. But even so, they were open to, to wind-driven waves, and especially waves from the west the west side, where you have a lot of open water, a lot of room for winds to build wave action up, a lot of what mariners call fetch. And, uh, and in the case of Holland Island, uh, Holland was a completely stable place through the, certainly through the Civil War. And then beginning, in, in, there have been a number of scientific studies that have shown that um, beginning right about 1850, right, right at the midpoint of the 19th century, something started to change in the Chesapeake Bay. And it may be in, uh, instructive for for what was going on with with water elsewhere as well. But what you see is a point of inflection where suddenly land loss starts to accelerate. What had been very steady on on Holland became uh, a critical, pretty critical erosion on that island's west side that forced the abandonment of a line of houses there. And with that abandonment, uh, Holland's economy imploded and everybody moved off and uh, it it took long enough to get bad that it really it really wasn't until right at the turn of the 20th century that that Holland Islanders recognized holy smokes we you know we've got a real issue here um, there were uh, 231 of them on the island I think at that point there were 160 170 of them still living there shortly before World War one. And by 1920, every one of them had gone. Hmm. Uh, what's the prognosis for Tangier Island? What? Uh, how soon could the could the water, or, or when do we think the water might swallow up the island? Well, uh, you know that's a that's a point of contention. Uh, I, the uh, in 2015, a, a scientific journal called Scientific Reports published a study that was put together by three researchers associated with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, uh, the Norfolk District of the Corps, which oversees that part of the Chesapeake. And they had used mapping technology to take uh, charts of the, of the bay dating back to 1850 and overlaying them, essentially, to chart the, the rate of, of erosion of land loss over time and then to extrapolate what what we could expect to see happen in the in the coming years, and the view was not in the least encouraging. Uh, in the report, they they used a kind of a middle model for for uh, sea level rise to uh, to come up with the prognosis that the island that the town would most likely have to be abandoned in fifty years or less, and that the island would would be gone would would disappear completely within a hundred. Since then, the uh, the authors of that report have acknowledged that that middle that middle case scenario for sea level rise in the bay was probably overly conservative. And they should have used a worst case scenario model, uh, which would see Tangier most likely abandoned in 25 years or less. Hmm. And and even that is, uh, in some views, um, in the views of some uh, a an optimistic forecast. 
I want to read, uh, this is from a review by Jonathan Miles of a positive review of your book. Uh, he says, at this point, we're no longer shocked by such forecasts, talking about, uh, you know, forecasts of 10 years, 25 years, or whatever it's going to be. Um, uh, uh, having absorbed louder, larger-scale predictions that owing to sea level rise, places such as Miami and New Orleans may one day be reefs rather than cities, he goes on to say, uh, likewise, for Tangiers, several hundred residents, with one major exception, they don't need to imagine it. They're watching it happen. Uh, leads me to my next question, which is what uh, what do the residents of Tangier think? What are they What are they saying? Well, it's important to remember that this is a uh, this is a, a virtually amphibious people who have made their living from the bay since the very beginning of the 19th century. Um, and they know the water well. And most of their, their knowledge of the water, their expertise of it, is based on, on anecdotal learning, what they see and experience on the water every day. Uh, Tangier is home to a, um, a fleet of shallow draft, mostly wooden boats that its men take out onto the bay every day to fish up the, the justly famed Chesapeake Bay blue crab and Tangier lays claim to being the soft-shell crab capital of the world and um, has earned every bit of that. So these, these, these people know their water, and they have found themselves at odds with scientists uh, often over the years. Uh, throughout the 80s and 90s, it was over the health of the blue, blue crab as a species. The uh, government and universities were worried that the, the crab was being overfished, that uh, the Tangierman and other crabbers were were eating their seed corn, essentially. And um, Tangierman disagreed strenuously with that assessment. Um, so they have a, a, an innate distrust of, of science, of, of book learning in general. And uh, and so the, the, I, I, there's no question that they can recognize that something terrible is unfolding around them, that a slow-motion natural disaster is underway at Tangier. They see the water coming up out of the marsh. They, they know that uh, high tides that in the past did, uh, did vert, you know, that had no effect on the town itself. Now not only chip away, you know, come up over the edges of the island, but bubble up straight out of the ground uh, to make ponds in their yards. And what they differ with with the scientific mainstream on uh, is that man has had any hand in what's happening. I don't think that uh, their, their, their views are often mischaracterized as they don't believe in, in sea level rise. Well, no, that's not exactly true. They, they, they recognize that something's going on, but they being deeply religious, staunchly conservative in their politics, um, tend to, uh, tend to believe that, uh, that this is part of nature's cycles, that, uh, that this is a, a God-ordained uh, part of, of the planet's rhythms, and that man has no hand in what's going on. And, and so they're, they're not so much interested in a debate about climate change, uh, but I think they do want action, right? And they're, uh, it seems like, and I, I went uh, from your website, uh, earlswift.com, I went to a, a CNN report, um, in which you appear and the mayor of the town appears, and he and some other fellows sitting around. Um, uh, by the way, the uh, 
the, the, the town voted overwhelmingly for President Trump, and they're looking for some action from him, I believe. They've been looking for action for quite some time, Tom. The, um, yeah, because they see the, the, the problem is, is mostly uh, one of erosion rather than uh, an inexorable rise of, of the bay. Um, they see that uh, the problem is simple and the solution is pretty simple, and that is you, you build a wall around the island. And if necessary, you blow in dredge fill to raise the level of its land. And voila, you've protected it for centuries to come. Um, needless to say, that's that's received a, a tepid response from the outside world, um, mostly because you've only got 460 people living on the island and, and uh, directly benefiting from what would be just an heroic expense of, of public dollars and effort. Um, but the uh, with with Donald Trump's ascension to the presidency, uh, I think they they see hope that uh, that he will take action, and uh, that has not been borne out yet. Mm. I guess we'll have to wait to see if it is. Um, but as you as you indicate, they voted eighty seven percent plus uh, for for Donald Trump in, in twenty sixteen. This this is Trump Island. The <laughs> the mayor is quite a guy. He features prominently in your book. Uh, he says he, he views uh, Trump as uh, like a family member. He goes on to say, along with another uh, couple of guys there, uh, he says they talk about a wall. We'll take a wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which got a laugh. Uh, yeah, I, I was sitting next to Uker, uh, James Uker Eskridge, the mayor, when he, when he said that to CNN. Uh, I was just off camera. And even by the... Uh, typically strident uh, measures of, of politics on, on Tangier when he announced that he loved Donald Trump as much as any family member he had. I, ha- I have to say I, I was Google-eyed. Um, but, um, you know, they, they yeah, they, they want to see a, they want to see a wall. Um, and um, this is a, a you know, a, a, such a long shot in terms of, of even feasibility uh, that I don't want to give it, uh, you know, too much time. But um, the Corps of Engineers has looked uh, or is looking into the, the possibility of perhaps preserving Tangier, not for its human residents, but for wildlife, especially migratory waterfowl that, that need offshore uh, marshland uh, along the Atlantic Flyway and uh, that that kind of habitat is fast disappearing and, and of great value, of such great value that the island is is worth far more as habitat uh, than it is as you know for the infrastructure of the town, and uh, and so the the core is is nosing around with a scheme that would see it restored Tangier as a essentially a wildlife refuge, and if that were to happen, well then the town might be saved along with it, but. Uh, the timeline for such a thing is such that uh, it's, a, it's a real question as to whether even if they, they went ahead with it um, at the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars, whether there would be anyone left on Tangier to celebrate by the time it was finished. Mm. You point out um, that the decisions we're making now about uh, places like Tangier uh, might set you know direction, might... Uh might have an effect on the bigger decisions that will be coming uh, down the road. Um, and and you say, I wonder if you could expand on this, that uh, perhaps we shouldn't make the criterion, uh, you know, the, the head count. Uh, 
because if if that's the case, then you know, five hundred seventy people, <laughs> no brainer. We don't save this island, but there but there are other things to consider. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're, what Tangier is an inconvenient first case. Um, we have to decide how to decide what we save and what we surrender to the sea because we lack the time, the money, and the technical means to save every place that is going to be imperiled along America's 88,000-mile shoreline. And, uh, you know, Tangier is a tiny town uh, and at first glance would seem uh, a pretty easy candidate for abandonment, except that if you are going to use headcount as your sole criterion, you are then you're going to surrender a lot of places that might not be big, but are essentially sacred ground in the American experience. So it can't be that simple. What we have to do as a country, as a people, is come up with a rubric for how, you know, what we value, what's important to us, and decide according to that rubric. Um, you know, on, on that kind of measure, a place like Tangier, which is an outlier culturally, linguistically, in just about every way you can be, might be worth a look you know, to saving um, because uh, this is a town that is truly like no other in the United States. And uh, when we when we lose some a place like Tangier, we we lose uh, some of the spice that in the American dish. The it, it is not by any means uh, a, a mainstream community that reflects. The, uh, the typical American experience, but that is that is what might be its its value. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about that the, the culture, the history, uh, the the unique spice uh, spices that make up uh, Tangier Island. Uh, we're talking with Earl Swift, author most recently of Chesapeake Requiem: A Year with the Watermen of Vanishing Tangier Island. More following this break. On the next Radio Lab. I assumed that there had to be some sort of check and balance so that one man couldn't just order the launch of nuclear weapons. The fate of humanity should not rest on one person. He could launch the kind of a devastating attack the world's never seen. He doesn't have to check with anybody. He doesn't have to call the Congress. He doesn't have to check with the courts. He has that authority because of the nature of the world we live in. That's in the next Radio Lab. Tomorrow at 10 on Utah Public Radio. When composer Bright Shang met Leonard Bernstein, he wowed the maestro with his talent. Not musical talent at first, but his skills in the kitchen. I'm Fred Child. Coming up, Bright Shang, Leonard Bernstein, and Peking Duck on the next Performance Today from APM. Tomorrow evening at 9 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're back with Earl Swift, his latest book, Chesapeake Requiem, a year with the watermen of vanishing Tangier Island. And uh, you know, some predictions uh, give the island maybe 25 years at the current rate of uh, erosion, and then it uh, perhaps slips into the Chesapeake Bay. Um, we want to talk a bit about culture and history. This is a very unique place. And we'll get into talking about this uh, this uh, segment of the uh, the program. Uh, so Earl Swift, you 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 went. I mean, you had various visits, but you went and spent a, a year 
uh, I guess more or less straight with uh, with people of Tangier? 14 months, beginning in, in May of 2016. That's when I took up residence. Yeah, I, uh, I rented the second floor of a, a house on one of the, the three parallel ridges of dry ground that, uh, that rise out of the, the marsh on Tangier proper. And, and to call them ridges stretches the definition of the term because if you were to stand in the marsh and look around, you, you'd be hard-pressed to figure out what was dry ground and what, what was wet. It, they are imperceptibly higher than the, uh, the surrounding wetlands. Hmm. And uh, you, you described the, um, especially the fishermen, the men, as, uh, as amphibious. Well, the entire population is, but particularly the men. I mean, this is a, a place that was mapped by John Smith in 1608, settled um, in, in 1778 by a gentleman named Joseph Crockett. And uh, virtually every island-born Tangierman today can trace his or her lineage back to Joseph Crockett. This is an island of cousins and closer, one big extended family. Um, so there's that that sets it apart, that that quirk. Um, and, you know, they've been isolated for so long that um, they have developed a, a this pattern of speech that is um, a mixture of the Tidewater hoitoid accent uh, and uh, a Cornish lilt, uh, vaguely Irish in it, it in its uh, in its sound, um, strangely rhythmed strangely. Uh, the cadences are, are, are different from what we're accustomed to. Uh, Single-syllable words are knotted into two and three syllables. And to complicate things further, Tangierman often say exactly the opposite of what they mean. So mm-hmm. if you can make out the words, you still may completely misunderstand what you're hearing. Um, <laughs> well, let's, let's... You know, it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a... You know, it's a place that that has no doctor, no live-in doctor. The nearest uh, emergency room is 30 miles away by helicopter, assuming that the weather is fit to fly. Um, you know, they, they are out on the edge, uh, dependent on, on each other and, uh, and on few others. And consequently, this is, uh, this is a hardy, um, hardy people who have, have grown accustomed to seeing the water as a tool. And, and so, yes, they are, they are amphibious. Um, what we would see as a, a terrible disadvantage, you know, this giant mode of water separating us from the rest of the planet, um, they, they have come to, uh, to deal with pretty comfortably. Let's hear, I went to uh, YouTube, and I just pulled up about a minute and a half of Tangierman speaking. This is uh, from an episode of something called American Tongues. Uh, this is episode three, and I just pulled a portion of this. So you'll hear some people on Tangier Island speaking. Um, you'll you'll hear the, I guess the accent and the dialect. Some of this I could understand. Others of this I could not. And maybe that'll be the case with, with our listeners. So here's uh, here's just a, a little bit of this. Guy, I can hire him on your Saturday night. Right. I drove his bomb out. Guy, I actually I had to get out. I was mom's been. Coral and casting at me all day. She was by the counter. She said, it's a lie, Jack. I said, who's that, Bob? <laughs> the first permanent settlement, white settlement on the island, was in uh, ni- uh, uh, 1686. There have been people living here ever since. 
Nearly about all of us that were born here on this island, we can say that our parents were born here, and our grandparents, and our great-grandparents, our great-great-grandparents, and right on down. What amazes me is that I can be most anywhere. I can be in the mall in Salisbury, Maryland, for example, and I can hear Tan German talking in the crowd, and I can immediately tell, hey, they're, they're from home, you know. If we're talking among ourselves, we might fall in to, to, to the pattern of uh, years ago and use words that you're not used to that you haven't heard. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to move with boss. But it's, it's just about gone now. We talk like everybody else. I figure I sound just like Walter Cronkite. <laughs> so he said, <laughs> he sounds just like Walter, Walter Cronkite. Uh, yeah, some some, uh, some uh, great people there. Um, I, I want, did you, uh, the first part of that, when they slipped into the deep, uh, I guess the dialect, I, I I didn't really understand much. See, that's the that the issue is when when they're talking to each other, you're lost until you've been there for a while and you can tune your ear to it. When they're when they're talking to a visitor, they'll they'll make an you know they'll make an effort to be understood. They'll they'll dial it down. But it's um, I guess with with any language group when, when you're with friends, you know you get you get lazier in your constructions and uh, and the tangier speak is a. Um, it's kind of uh, uses a lot of shorthand, and uh, and as I've mentioned, it's often often flipped. It's it's talking backwards. So uh, so for instance, if a, a, an attractive woman walked by a group of watermen, invariably one would say she ain't nothing to look at. Now, of course, I'm saying it in more or less proper English compared to what they'd say, but uh, but that would be the and everyone in the group would understand that that's not what that speaker meant. Hmm. I was uh, uh, I was interested in the comments. I'm not sure if it was to this clip on YouTube or another one. Uh, someone from the UK was listening to that, and they they said that it reminded them of the way people in Sussex uh, used to speak, but but only the very old people in Sussex speak that way anymore because everything's been evened out and people speak you know more or less proper London dialect nowadays. I guess it's it's a, it's, yeah, a, well, it's an isolation corn, factor. Corn, Cornwall, Cornwall yeah, is Cornwall's where it is. Okay, you, all right. Yeah, that's that. That's what's most often cited as the uh, the source for the the Tangier accent. Is, yeah, uh, settlers, nineteenth century settlers from Cornwall. And uh, I guess the uh, be the isolation that be, be a big factor in, in yeah, preserving and, this. Uh, and and that's of course becoming less the case now that satellite TV has arrived on the island and the internet and whatnot. Uh, but for, for 150 years, uh, they were just talking to each other. And, uh, and I guess it was self-reinforcing. Mm. The one gentleman in the clip uh, you heard there, is, uh, he, he seemed very, you could see that you couldn't see his face in this sound clip, but he seemed very proud that, uh, you know, his father was born on the island, the the grandfather, great-grandfather. He could trace his lineage right on back. Everybody was born right there on the island. Yeah, yeah. well, like I said, they all know who the, the wellspring of, of this particular um, genetic line is, and it's Joseph Crockett. 
um, kids on the island, I guess, are 10th generation now. Um, adults in their 50s and 60s or 8th or 9th. And uh, they, uh, they all can pretty much take you back mm. one generation after the next uh, to a degree that most Americans cannot. Tell me a little bit more about the, the culture, the customs. Uh, anything stand out to you? Well, it's uh, it it, uh, it is maybe a little less so than in the past, but uh, Tangier is is a uh, a functioning theocracy, basically of of old school Methodists uh, and uh, a breakaway flock of even more old school uh, biblical literalists. Uh, and uh, it's dry, as I mentioned. Uh, in the, in the 1990s, in fact, uh, Tangier's town council voted to not allow uh, a Kevin Costner movie, Message in a Bottle, to uh, to film there because of scenes of beer drinking and PG-13 sex in the script. And, um, you know, that's that's pretty typical. Uh, until recently, there were no Harry Potter novels in the, in the school library. Um, it's a place where... Uh, with a very with very old fashioned sensibilities about what's right and what's wrong, uh, which is part of its charm and part of the challenge of, of living there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there? I understand uh, no cell service, or at least until uh, recently, maybe I don't know. No, it dies about halfway across when you're on the uh, on the on the mail boat headed for the island, and uh, very occasionally there will be some sort of atmospheric glitch that will let you get a signal for a minute or two, but it dies as quickly as it comes. And so now there's, there's no cell service. Everybody uses a landline mm. and, uh, and they have a communication system, a phone tree basically on the Island that can move news over the ridges with lightning speed. Uh, it, it's an incredibly efficient method of communication. So if for instance, the siren on top of the firehouse goes off, Within two minutes, everyone on the island knows who's sick or who's been hurt, whether the a helicopter is coming in for them, you know, what the state of the individual is. I mean, all the details have been have been passed along. It's uh, it's remarkable. Hmm. I, I guess that uh, it's that community which. For some people, would be too closed in, but uh, if, if you like the community, it's that's, that's a virtue of it. It is. If you if you have kids, the you know you can let your kids roam without fear. Pretty much, they have an entire village watching over them. Um, and if you are a kid, it's uh, it's a, na- a natural wonderland. You can mudlark in the marsh and uh, and go crabbing, go fishing. There's a, a mile-long, beautiful white sand beach that very few Tangiermen walk. It's virtually empty all the time. And, um, you know, the island being a busy place during the day, mm. um, most people don't have time for that sort of thing. Mm. It's, uh, you know, but those, those pluses are also balanced out by a couple of, of natural challenges, one of them being that on a summer day when the, the wind isn't blowing, the island is populated by voracious mosquitoes and green-eyed deer flies that will carve a bloody crater out of your skin and mm. defy you to slap them while they're doing it. Mm. They'll, they'll keep biting right up until your hand flattens them. Mm. And um, and to be, to be 
besieged by greenheads is, as the flies are called there, uh, is an experience that you you remember. Mm, yeah, <laughs> but um, I, I I wonder, I, you know, would would you consider relocating there? Well, well, it's it's not the best real estate investment at the mm. moment, Tom. I mean, yeah, that's it, true. No, it's no, a, it's a yeah, disappearing the, island. It's a disappearing island, right? Um, I guess you'd you'd get to twenty some odd years in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you borrow the view for a while, and and that is one of the terrible challenges facing the place. I think there are probably some islanders who would quit Tangier if it weren't for the fact that they can't afford to. They're pretty much locked into homes that they cannot sell or cannot sell for a price that would enable them to buy another home on the mainland. Um, the, you know, Smith Island, which is a Maryland island uh, across the state line to the north, in much more protected water, a much shorter distance to Crisfield, Maryland, the, the nearest mainland port, uh, has been able to attract weekenders from Baltimore and elsewhere who have bought some of the old houses. Uh, Tangier, way out in the middle of the bay, uh, a much dicier place to reach, has not had that experience, and so 60-some-odd houses sit empty now. Not that you would know that. They're all very well kept. Uh, the entire town is, is pretty well maintained. Uh, but still, there's a lot of empty housing stock as the population's dropping. You know, there are two forms of erosion at work on Tangier right now, the physical and, and the demographic. Hmm. I was going to ask you, are people staying? I guess some people would leave, but they, but they can't, economic reasons. Are the young people staying? Well, it used to be that, that until the early 80s, say, uh, virtually every Tangier boy dropped out of school in the ninth or 10th grade and went to follow his father onto the water. And uh, at the time, you could buy a, a fully rigged boat for $25,000 or less, and a bank would lend you every penny of that. Now that same boat costs you $150,000, and the bank, won't, the bank won't give you any money. And so getting into the water business has become a, a much more difficult proposition, and, and you see very, very few uh, island boys headed that way. The, the, last, the last full um, large group of, of island boys to, to take up crabbing, they're now right at about 40 years old, so that tells you how long it's been. So what's happened is that uh, kids, as they graduate from from Tangier Combined School, which is the only K through 12 left in Virginia. Um, they leave the island for the military or for college, and they don't come back. And consequently, the island is aging rapidly. Its, its average age is in the mid-50s now, and there's a, a very large uh, percentage of islanders who are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And um, so a, a, a die-off is, is looming and, and really is, has been underway for a while. And the population is is nosediving. You know, uh, you can you can chart Tangier's population over the years, and it, it grew uh, to reach close to thirteen hundred people uh, by the early nineteen thirties. And then, beginning with a, a transformative hurricane that hit the bay in nineteen thirty three, that the population starts to drop, and and for the first five decades, it follows a pretty shallow glide slope as it, as it drops. But then in the 80s, it starts to nose. And uh, and so uh, in 2000, the, the island's population was 604. It now sits at 460, so it's lost a fifth of its population in, 
in 18 years. And, uh, and it's going to get worse. Hmm. And it'll get worse quickly, you know, uh, that the, the decrease in population will steepen. So that's an issue. Uh, yeah. Because, because you're, you're on an island. And, you know, if you're, if you're living in a, in a small town in the Utah desert or in the American South and the grocery store closes, well, it might be awfully inconvenient, but you get in your car and you drive five or ten miles to the next town over and you go to the grocery store there. But when you're on an island 12 miles from the mainland and the weather's bad and your grocery store is no longer and the island has just one and it's small, um, you're, you're in trouble. Suddenly, uh, especially because you have an aging population that cannot get around as it once did, uh, that becomes more than an inconvenience. That becomes an existential threat. Same goes for the school, which had 100 students in 2000, and which next year will be down to 53. Uh, there comes a tipping point where you lack the human critical mass to, to be affordable to the cash-strapped mainland school district that oversees you and finances you. And uh, you know, if the, if the school were to close, heaven forbid, a third of the island would just would leave instantly because the alternative to having your kids in school at the K through 12 on Tangier is to put them on a boat uh, that would have to cross 16 open water miles of, of Tangier Sound and Pocomoke Sound to uh, often turbulent arms of the bay to get to Anancock, the nearest Virginia town. Uh, that's a, that's a no go for most Tangier parents. There's no way they put their kids on a, on a school boat across that water. So you'd, you'd see them leave, and, uh, and because most Tangier families are two-parent, you'd see a much greater effect from an exodus like that than you might on the mainland, mm. where divorce is more common. So it's, uh, you know, you, and then finally, I guess the, the other critical service that faces a tipping point is the mailboat, which is actually a family business. It has the contract to carry the mail, but, uh, but it is not a government undertaking. And again, you, you, you have to have a critical mass of passenger use to continue operation, to remain solvent. And I'm not sure where the tipping point is for each of these critical services, but it's looming for each. And, um, and that's scary. This all illustrates um, vulnerabilities, right? Not only for Tangier, but for other similar uh, communities, not only environmental vulnerabilities, but, um, but but others that you've enumerated. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And Tangier is a, a canary in the coal mine on on several fronts. Most pressingly, of course, on the on the environmental, because the the dilemma in which the island finds itself is is going to play out in a neighborhood near yours. You know, mm-hmm. pretty uh, doggone soon. Y- yeah. Um, I don't know, and we talked about this a little bit, it would maybe loop back around. Um, I don't know how people on Tangiers, I imagine they maybe have mixed feelings about being uh, a poster child case for, um, you know, for, for, for climate change, for rising sea water. Well, yeah, I think they have very mixed feelings about it. Of course, they'd rather not be in the situation they're in. They'd rather not have to be a poster child. I think they're grateful for the attention because they hope that it'll it'll bring it'll bring some sort of government action to save them. But um, 
but certainly, yeah, they, you know, this is a place that's been been populated for 240 years and has a lot of claims to fame, and, and um, I think it's frustrating to some islanders that what they're becoming best known for is, is the idea that they might not be there much longer. Um, it's, uh, it's dispiriting. I think it's a, a uh, it's probably a good thing that it's as face, a faith-based a population as it is, because I think faith has become ever more important to just getting through the day. You just joined us. We're talking with Earl Swift, uh, his uh, new book, Chesapeake Requiem, A Year with the Watermen of Vanishing Tangier Island. Um, so Earl Swift, um, you, you've mentioned um, a very religious community. Um, is, I don't know the proper word to use, this, uh, you know, the, the people on Tangiers consider this just to be a sign of end times? Is this this inevitable act of God kind of a thing? What, what do they, how do they fold this into their religious beliefs? Well, it's, I think there is an element of that. I, I do think that uh, some see uh, this as a, uh, a harbinger for the the end times. I, I think that more of them, however, see themselves as an anointed people, that they've been anointed uh, through their prayer and their their staunch belief uh, over time, and that they have been spared numerous times in the past because of their faith. And uh, they'll cite as examples a cholera epidemic uh, that could have taken down the island in the 19th century, but did not. Typhoid epidemic that could have done the same. Multiple hurricanes beginning in 1821 were one that was rather uh, modestly named the September Gust, apparently covered the island in, in three feet of water, the highest point of the island. Um, you know, uh, they have come through uh, battered but intact Throughout, you know, through all of these uh, these episodes, and that further it affirms their their belief that they are anointed, and uh, so I, I think that uh, you see a certain uh, fatalistic acknowledgement that the end may be coming, but you also see uh, a belief that they will be snatched from the jaws of of destruction, and um, I'm not sure which of those beliefs uh, is is more prevalent. I think it probably shifts from day to day, but um, but both are both are noticeable. Hmm. In the meantime, they can see the waters rising, right? They can see the erosion. Um, it's they don't have to imagine this. I wonder how this translates, or what do you? What do you think people will will take from the people that don't know the history of, or, or the maybe the possible future of Tangier Island? Um, this could potentially play out along uh, many of our coastal areas. It sure could, and it's sneaky. You know, because it's a marsh island, it doesn't react to sea level rise like it might if you were living in a beachfront town, say. Uh, it's not a, a case of the water climbing higher up the shore in a way that you can measure day-to-day or year-to-year. What happens is that as marsh, as, as water gets deeper in marsh, the marsh drowns, and it turns to open water. And high and dry ground turns to marsh. 
So what you see on Tangier is a gradually um, opening. Uh, you, you see a, a solid marsh island becoming a loose macrame of land, just strands of marsh linked together. And, um, and say, you know, it's, it, it, it's, a, it, it's something that you might not notice if you were a waterman going out and fishing up your pots every day and then coming home and spending little time, you know, out there in the wetlands. But if you get up in a plane and you compare aerial photographs of Tangier's Marsh today versus Tangier's Marsh from when I was there in 2000, say, the difference is startling. It's completely ponded up. The, uh, the rivulets, the guts, as they're called in the bay, that run through, the tidal guts that run through the marsh are twice as wide as they were when I was, when I was on the island 18 years ago. The, um, it, it's turning to Swiss cheese. It's just, it's just disintegrating from the inside out, as well as losing shoreline around its edges. So it's a, it's a diabolical kind of effect that, that it has. You know, if you're on solid ground, if you're on rocky ground, you could see it actually climbing the shores. Here, the shores are so soft and low that that's really, you don't have a gauge, you don't have a yardstick to measure it by, except that the island is drowning. Hmm. I wonder if we just have a couple minutes left. I wonder if you could, uh, uh, you know, there's some very interesting people, of course, uh, there on uh, Tangier Island. Um, you spent <clears throat> over a year with them and uh, others, other reporting trips. Maybe, uh, I don't know, a superlative who, who stood out to you the most or one or two people you tell us about. Well, I have, I have many favorites on the island, but one who immediately comes to mind is a guy named Leon McMahon, who is 87 years old and the oldest active waterman on the island. And Leon goes out and gets up at 2 o'clock every morning, is on the water by 3, 3.30, and he spends the, the next 9 to 10 hours dragging a scrape across the mud along the Tangier shore, scooping, uh, scooping peeler crabs up into his, his net, dumping them onto his boat. And then uh, eventually those become the soft-shell crabs savored by gourmands up and down the coast. And um, he is, uh, he used, you see pictures of Leon when, in, you know, in the 1970s, and he was a big burly guy with mutton, mutton chop sideburns. And, and at 87, he's somewhat diminished. He's uh, he's quite a bit shorter than he used to be, and he's but he still has arms like Popeyes. His forearms are just knots of uh, cables of uh, of strength. Uh, I, I wouldn't take him on. Uh, <laughs> he, he's an amazing, amazing person. And then you've got you know, Carol Moore, who who opens uh, opens the book. Uh, Carol. Uh, took on as a habit visiting this abandoned settlement, Canaan, where her, her forebears uh, had lived for generations, uh, probably about 20 years ago. And she did it first as kind of a, a seamanship exercise. She wanted to get better at handling her boat in, in all kinds of weather. And, uh, and the run-up to, to Canaan, which is across a mile of marsh from, from the town proper, uh, was a good test of that. But after a while, she became entranced by uh, the notion that, you know, Canaan was not only a, a, a monument to lives already lived, but uh, but that it whispered of, of things to come, that uh, 
that it was a lesson in the impermanence of all things. And uh, she took the kind of melancholy pleasure, I think, out of going there every day. It grounded her. And uh, I just found her to be very thoughtful. And, uh, and I think that, that what she has to say about the island and her place in it and, and the place of both in time and the grand scheme of, of things uh, helped make the book uh, perhaps uh, speak a little more broadly than than it would if it were just a, a book about one little island and the 460 people living on it. Well, very interesting book. It's out uh, now, Chesapeake Requiem, A Year with the Watermen of Vanishing Tangier Island. The author Earl Swift has joined us for the hour today. Uh, Earl Swift, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. anniversary and would like to thank the National Audubon Society for becoming one of our newest sponsors. For more information on how you can become a sponsor, call 435-797-3138. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at UPR.org. 